Broadcasting from the Cradle of Liberty in Philadelphia. All the way to the rhythm and blues of Beale Street in Memphis. To high atop the Wasatch Mountains in Utah. This is where politically correct perception meets common sense. This is the Joe Carey Show. Hello there and welcome to the Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe. Joe's getting a much-needed vacation. Happy to be uh, taking some host duties for him uh, during his vacation time. And by the way, if you want to join in the conversation, you can do so very easily. they got this new thing. It's called a telephone. Maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> yeah, people carry it around with them. 801-331-8113 is the number if you'd like to call in. I, I just heard it in the news. I've seen this pop up a couple of times now in news stories on social media. And I'm just shaking my head in wonder, and it may be a little bit of disgust. So a city in California now has banned the use of uh, manhole to describe, well, a manhole in the street. And I forget what they're even going to call it, but uh, it's it's this, uh, I don't know what you would call it. Is this the gender social justice warfare that we're carrying out here? No longer will we refer to, refer to things as being man-made. No, they're human-made. How far is this silliness going to go? And, and the reason I'm asking this, please understand, it's not just because, oh boy, there's a male, white male, a religious white male. Wait, one more. A heterosexual religious white male questioning the orthodoxy of what those who know best are telling us. Although I am questioning their orthodoxy, yes. And I'm guilty of all the things I just described myself as being guilty of. But how is this improving the lot of humanity? And I'm just going to give you an example here because I know, I know this is on a lot of folks' minds. Uh, as as uh, as we do this show, this is the 19th of July. We are one day away from the 50th anniversary of Neil Armstrong's historic setting foot on the moon. Now, this is a big deal. I was three years old at the time. But I remember my parents putting me in front of the television set and talking to me about I didn't really understand very well what was going on, but I knew what the moon was. Well, some of my bedtime stories had to do with the moon and uh, curiously about these two little Indians who shot arrows one into another until they had enough that they could climb up to the moon and they played around up there and got in trouble. Anyway, it, I knew where the, I knew what the moon was. And so I thought it was very interesting that this guy in a weird looking suit and blurry video was was there. And my parents were telling me as a kid, this is amazing. This is so historic. Now, I don't remember the details all that well. You know, 50 years was a long time ago, and I was a very small kid at the time. But I remember it was a big deal. And it was. And if you would like to call and discuss how it was all fake, (laughs) um, I was going to say, go ahead and call in, but, you know, please reconsider. Look, I wasn't there on the moon. True. But I've talked with a number of people over the years who actually worked with NASA, who were part of that project. And if they were perpetuating the biggest conspiracy ever, uh, let me just say that, uh, boy, they were doing a masterful job of it because they really believed they had worked on spacecraft that had gone to the moon or had they had been part of the behind the scenes crew that was, you know, tracking the telemetry and whatever else they needed to do. There was a lot of folks who worked on it. Here's my point, though. What were the first words 
as Neil Armstrong descended down that ladder and set his foot upon the moon? Uh, You know the answer, right? Come on. That's one small step for person. One giant leap for humankind. No. Is one small step for man a giant leap for mankind? Immortal words. Those are the kind of words that deserve to be, uh, you know, engraved in statues and on plaques. Because it was that historic of a moment. But uh, the the new kids have got together, apparently, and decided, hey, we're going to reinvent the wheel. And we can't use those kind of words anymore. Look, my, my point is simply this. It's one thing to say, well, maybe there's a better way to say this. But I'm going to ask you to consider with that kind of uh, tunnel vision, what do you think the likelihood is that we ever could have got to the moon in the first place? If every decision had to be weighed against, well, now who is going to be offended by this or who is going to feel that we're being less than inclusive? I think we were a lot less preoccupied with feelings and and again, the, the politically correct kind of feelings that that. Uh, our, our friends who know best would have us believe. And the concern for me isn't so much that, yeah, there are people who think this way. It's, you know what? It's a free, it's a free nation or it should be. You should be free to think whatever you want to. But when they start capturing actual government authority, in this case, municipal authority and saying, yeah, this is now going to be official. No longer can we refer to a manhole as a manhole. It's a person hole. Or a maintenance hole, I guess is what they're going to call it. All right. Technically, it's, a- it's accurate, but it's the reasoning behind it. This is just another few steps along that timeline that's trying to shift us away from reality. And I wish I had the power to look ahead five years, ten years from now to see where does this kind of thinking lead? Because frankly, as I look back over the last five to ten years, I'm absolutely astonished to see how far we have come and not in a good way. I guess the only answer that I can think of, and I'm I'm not telling you, by gosh, we ought to be out there with pitchforks and torches protesting in the streets. Nah. No, that just gives them legitimacy that I think these, uh, these controlling types are looking for. They want to see that they're getting a reaction. I think the best thing we can do is ignore them. Let them fade into irrelevance. If you feel the need, sometimes ridicule can be a pretty effective tool. But I would use it sparingly. Don't make it your your go-to thing. One small step for a giant leap for kind. Sorry, Neil Armstrong. I, I know it was a great accomplishment and everything, but in light of the kinder, gentler society that we've become, we really can't acknowledge what you've done. If you had just chosen your words a little more inclusively, well, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Please, give me a break. All right. Hey, it felt good to get that off my chest. (sighs) Got something to get off your chest? Feel free to call into the Joe Carey Show at 801-331-8113. I will be joined later on this hour by Carrie McDonald, a senior education fellow with the Foundation for Economic Education. She has a recent article out. We're going to touch on that. That'll be coming up uh, towards the end of the hour. In between now and then, let's talk a little bit about foreign policy. I, I have this sense of uh, 
dread as well as morbid curiosity every time I open up a browser and go to see what are the latest news headlines. What am I going to learn about how Iran is provoking the U.S. into some kind of military action? And yes, I'm being sarcastic. So the latest claim is, well, the U.S. Navy has shot down, or I shouldn't say shot down, has brought down an Iranian drone that apparently was threatening U.S. naval vessels in international waters that just happened to be right there at the doorstep of Iran. Now, look, I know I'm asking a lot when I, when I ask you to consider this, but if, uh, if Iran was to come right up to the edge of international waters, right? What does it extend? 12 miles off, of the, off the shores, 20 miles, something like that. If they, were to, if they were to come up to our shores with warships, and not just one, lots of them, and start monkeying around, would that be cool? I mean, we'd we'd be okay. We'd be like, yeah, well, you know, it's as long as it's, <laughs> as long as they're not uh, exactly in our waters, everything is really good. Or would we be like, hey, why, why are you doing this? Why are you sending your war making might right here to our doorstep and then daring us to do something about it? Now, if if you're reading this as Brian, are you, are you suggesting that somehow the U.S. is is the provocateur or is the one who's being belligerent? That's exactly what I'm suggesting. Look, there's bad blood between these two countries, between the, the governments of these two countries. Let me be a little more specific. Why does someone want to see conflict so badly? I, I don't know what, what it is that motivates Iran's government, but I'm pretty sure that, uh, hey, we would love to bring the wrath of hell right down upon our country and be destroyed. I mean, they're already being destroyed economically for reasons which are not really clear as to why, why is it our business to be destroying them economically? Still haven't quite figured that out. But I got to tell you, I think it's pathetic to see our government playing the victim. Well, you know, this, this drone, yes, this unmanned little drone, flying around taking pictures, it got close enough to our ships that we felt it was a threat and we had to bring it down. Right. And of course, if the shoe was on the other foot, we would understand totally if they did the same kind of thing. Oh, wait, no, we wouldn't. <laughs> we'd, uh, we'd start threatening some more and send some more warships over there. I don't know. I got a message, I guess, I want to share with critics uh, who... Uh, who, who think that uh, the best thing we can do is take Iran down. We'll touch on that coming up here in the next segment. This is the Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Joe Carey Show. This is Brian Hyde filling in for Joe today. And look, if, if you need to set me straight, and there's a very distinct possibility that I may be just completely wrong about what I'm going to talk about here. So if you need to, if you need to get me back on track, steer me back out of the weeds here. 801-331-8113 is the number where you can do it. But I want you to hear me out first. I found an article by William Crumholz. The blob lashes out at critics of endless war. And, and this speaks directly to American foreign policy. And he starts by pointing out that America has pursued the same foreign policy for almost two decades, and the results aren't good. 
In Afghanistan, for example, the Taliban controls the same area of land that it held a decade ago. By most metrics, things are getting worse, and there's still no end in sight. But instead of admitting its failure, changing course, Washington's foreign policy establishment insists there is no option but the status quo and then demands that its critics do the impossible and predict the future. The latest example of this occurred when Kevin Barron, executive director of the or executive editor of the Atlantic's uh, Defense One, penned an op-ed titled End Forever Wars is a Soundbite, Not a Security Policy. Now, Barron criticizes those who point out how long we've been in Afghanistan and who point out the lack of progress on the ground. He says that instead, we should ask ourselves whether Afghanistan is making America safer. And then Barron lists countries and regions where America is now intervening, asking critics of these permanent wars to prove terror won't thrive once we leave. Absent that impossible accomplishment, accomplishment rather, he, like the rest of Washington's foreign policy blob, won't countenance U.S. departure. Now, some policymakers and pundits no doubt have vague foreign policy plans. And after three successive presidents campaigned on less interventionist foreign policies, only to so far underdeliver while in office, there should be much doubt from anyone promising to radically change course if they were to win in 2020. But the foreign policy establishment is wrong to think ending forever wars isn't a security policy. It's exactly that. In demanding specifics, Barron unintentionally makes the case for abandoning the foreign policy's status quo. The many countries in which the U.S. military is intervening, countries like Somalia, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and dozens of troubled countries in Africa, are all incredibly complex. It's admittedly not possible to know exactly what would happen after an American exit, especially in the long term. But by that very token, this complexity is why Washington cannot bend these troubled regions to its will. What's more, these forever wars are not strategically important to America's security. Now, Barron points out, well, Al-Qaeda operated from Afghanistan to hit America on 9-11. But we have plenty of options that don't entail occupation and nation-building to keep Al-Qaeda from again having a safe haven. And Al-Qaeda is already operating in other areas alongside supposed U.S. partners, including Saudi Arabia, which has ties with Al-Qaeda in Syria and Yemen's civil wars. Now, often the turmoil created because of our interventions opens a space for Al-Qaeda or Islamic State to operate in. Libya, Syria, and Iraq provide perfect examples of this. And because of the complexity of the Middle East and the limits of our military, which is intended to destroy, not build, there's a very real risk that American intervention and nation building is actually making things worse, not better. Washington may be unwittingly stunting the growth of a moderate Islamic movement, which is the only real long-term solution to Islamic extremism. Meanwhile, intervention too often aligns the U.S. with bad actors. In Syria, American special forces were ordered to train fighters suspected of being jihadists. The program was completely ineffectual for advancing U.S. interest, but it cost the American taxpayers a billion dollars a year. And that's not the only questionable partnership that reckless interventionism has produced. When the Sunni Islamic State emerged, America found itself coordinating with Shia Iran. 
In Afghanistan, there's a widespread practice of Baka Abazi, the sexual abuse of young boys by certain Afghan warlords, police and military, who are often protected, supported, and funded by our government. Now, American soldiers are horrified by the practice, but they've been told by their superiors to ignore the abuse. After all, these warlords are allies against the Taliban. Now, this problem was exposed in 2015 when several of the abused young boys obtained guns and started shooting their abusers as well as American service members. It's indefensible for Washington to put our soldiers in this position. And the problem is still ongoing today, as evidenced by a 2018 report released by the Trump administration that the Obama administration had sought to hide until 2042. Though there's little indication the situation has changed under the Trump administration. And that Washington continues to put our soldiers in these situations is immoral. We don't have to choose between arming potential jihadists and Bashar al-Assad. We don't have to take a side in the centuries-long Sunni-Shia rivalry. We don't have to choose between warlords who keep child sex slaves and the Taliban who criminalize the practice. There's a third choice, and that is to drastically recalibrate U.S. Middle East policy and reduce our ground presence. Now, the risk of oversimplifying is real, but that's no argument for prolonging forever war. Instead of trying to make sense out of chaos and instead of futile attempts to bend a complex system to our will, the best policy is to force the region to sort out its own problems while U.S. military power focuses on keeping Americans safe. At this point, the burden of proof falls on the Washington establishment to show why the status quo is working. But see, that too is an impossible task. This is from William I'm sorry, Willis S. Krumholtz, who's a fellow at Defense Priorities. Now, look, I think he makes a certain amount of sense here. Our foreign policy by ours, our government's foreign policy. I want to make this. I want to make the uh, this clear that it's, it's not something you and I have any say in whatsoever. It's not making us safer. It's not making us freer. And by us, I mean you and I. So how do we shift this? You know, I don't really have an answer for you other than withdraw your consent in any way that you can. When candidates run on the promise of, I'm going to make sure that uh, our military is the biggest, baddest, you know, and we'll have all these, uh, these expenditures for its arming and stuff, that's great. But how are they going to be used? They need to be asked. These candidates need to be asked. How will you provide oversight to make sure that we're not out there making things worse? There needs to be a... I guess the the phrase I've seen is transpartisan revolt against America's endless wars. And I'm not trying to lay this at the feet of the Republicans. The Democrats go along with this, too. The establishment is probably the best way to describe those who support this foreign policy approach. Which puts them in, in bed with, you know, dictators in Saudi Arabia And causes them to have to turn a blind eye to abuses like was described in in Afghanistan. Sure, we'll uh, we'll support the warlords with the the child sex slaves. But at the same time, it's radicalizing 
and polarizing people in countries where there is no clear U.S. interest. And worse, it's taking people who entered the U.S. military in good faith and betraying their trust by sending them on a fool's errand. Can we at least agree they deserve something better than that? The more troops we send abroad, the more people we kill with drone strikes and extrajudicial assassinations, you know, to keep us safe. The less free we are here at home. Help me understand how that works. It's almost as if war somehow was the health of the state. I can't remember who said it, but they were dang spot on when they said it that way. listening to the Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe today. And the lines are open at 801-331-8113. All right, I've been going off on on foreign policy. And and it's because it's kind of a hot button issue, but there's always the possibility I could be dead wrong on this. So let's go to the phone and I will will take my comeuppance if necessary. Rob, welcome to the Joe Carey Show and thanks for joining us. How are you doing today, sir? I am well. All this stuff you're talking about, and it really frustrates me too, as well. Um, but you missed. I mean, you're not hitting the nail on the head here. Okay. It's all about the. Pe- it's all about the petrodollar, man. If that currency collapses, that that's why we're in all these different countries. That's why we're dropping guns off to this guy and funding him to kill that one. Because if we don't have a presence there, we can't guarantee that the oil around the world will be traded in the dollar. Then what happens if that dollar collapses? All the pension plans, all the everybody's what they think they're worth turns to dust overnight. And that's the sphere that think about it. What would happen if the city worker wouldn't get his pension plan or the or the school bus driver or the mayor or, or you know, the guy who put away all this money in his IRA to get the tax deduction, four oh one Ks, all that stuff, your housing prices would crumble right before your eyes. Well, I, as much as I want to believe it's it's actually, you know, a noble effort to protect those people, I suspect it's something else because I, I look at the spending that our government engages in, and, and I'm sure that would be tied to this as well. If the dollar were to collapse, uh-oh, now the spending gets gets shut off, the spigot gets turned off, and, and that's uh, that dwarfs even all the the pension plans and and savings that you're talking yeah, about, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have Boeing making tons of money through the military industrial complex, Pratt and Whitney, L3, all the logistics companies, all those companies wouldn't be cashing in like they are. Their 401 go, their stock would go down in the toilet. Yeah, all the it's follow the money. It's all about the money. So let me you know, let me ask you this, Rob. Does sure. doesn't that point then to a a fatal flaw? In our currency or in our monetary policy? Oh, absolutely. So why don't we why don't we fix that instead of creating enemies well, everywhere? Because nobody wants to feel the pain. Everyone's scared right. to do it. Okay. Actually, that that makes sense. Kick the can further down the road. They'll keep kicking. They've been doing it for decades, and I've said this all along. 
you know how you want to start getting out of this whole mess? You start making people fund their own pension plans and do all that stuff. No health care for anybody. Insurance come. I and mean, look at this. Look at this whole deal with this this uh, insurance deal with the um, the nine eleven responders. You know. What a joke that we're, we're, we're funding, we're bailing out all these people that are getting sick. What, what happened to the insurance companies that are supposed to be insuring our first responders that the taxpayer's paying for through taxation? Where did all that money go to? Ah, good question. You know, so these are the things. I mean, where is the money going? When you raise taxes, you cut my pay. How about you cut your own pay or cut your spending? And figure out how you're going to give yourself your own pay increase by taking from one thing and and getting rid of eliminating something in government that's a waste and putting it towards your your pay increase. I I can't disagree with a single thing you've said here, Rob. At the same time, I'm wondering, though, can we ever return to a sound currency? Absolutely. You could. You could. You have to start right now. And you have to start getting rid of all these pension plans and all these taxpayer-funded, like, perks. That's just another form of welfare. Where in the Constitution does it say that I'm supposed to be funding, you know, the firefighters, their pension plans, the police? I've been saying this for decades. You know, paying for their health care, the school teachers, everybody in government that works for the government. Well, why am I supposed to be funding you? No, good, a good question. Get your, get your paycheck, get a little discipline, and start living within your means and stop living off my back. Or, or as it was pointed out in Mr. Krumholtz's article, uh, how about that billion dollars a year that's being paid to train jihadists to fight, uh, you know, our enemies? You know, that there's a lot of foreign aid that goes out there, too, that well, you're, I, you're I don't know how that benefits us. I just told you, it keeps that petrodollar yeah. alive, keeps your presence out there. That's how it benefits us now. That's, that's, that's the root of all evil right now uh, as far as our military personnel being all over the world. And then we have to, you know, then they get injured. we got to take them back. I mean, the military, I, you know, I had a talk with a guy the other day. He was a Vietnam vet, you know. And, and he says, oh, we were, we were saving, doing things for kids like you. I was like, what were you doing? You're fighting unconstitutional wars. I mean, what, what, you're not... You just you said it to yourself on your show. They're not fighting for my freedom. They're enslaving us in taxation. We're losing more and more of our freedoms if we keep going down this road. And that's why they don't like the president. Well, I appreciate your take on this, Rob. Thanks, care, thanks for speaking out. 801-331-8113. I think he's right, too, about we could. We could have sound currency. But somebody's going to have to take the hit. And nobody wants to do it. And the longer we put it off, the worse the correction is going to be. And look, I'm not an economist and I'm not even a monetary policy specialist, but there's just some common sense at play here. You can't continue to spend beyond your means. You can't continue to debase your own currency without it failing at some point. At some point, somebody's going to go, okay, enough. We rack up enough debt that it's, that it's mathematically impossible for us to pay it back. And keep in mind that the debt that, that's being incurred here isn't just, well, you know, it's just spending. It's never going to get any higher. No, there's interest on top of it. And if you know anything about how interest works, there comes a point where interest will compound and it will it will bury you. Now, it's a good thing if you're saving money and you're seeing your money compound 
It's it's the way that a guy who puts away, you know, uh, a modest amount of money on a consistent basis, say starting at about age 18, can very realistically be a millionaire by the time he's 40 years old. That's the good kind of compound interest. Now, there's another kind of interest, though, that's that's at work every second of every day, whether we're awake, whether we're asleep, whether it's a holiday, it doesn't stop. And that is the kind of interest that keeps building on our national debt. And you know what? <laughs> it's not a matter of, well, we just uh, we just need to print more money. It's the spending that's out of control. And, and that's the other problem. No, but nobody wants to be the one to say, hey, maybe government needs to step back or trim back its, its services in these areas because they might not get reelected. To the phone. Caller, welcome to the Joe Carey Show. Well, thank you, Brian, for taking my call. How are you doing today? Excellent. Good, good. Yes, always enjoy your show. It, you, you're always provocative, always getting me thinking, 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 and I love it. And I'm not calling up to dispute you, uh, maybe just to throw a few more insights into the pot. Please do. Okay. Um, you see, you touched on three subjects. Um the first subject, as far as changing our vocabulary, I, um, I definitely have a pet peeve about changing our vocabulary. You know, I mean, in the 60s, gay meant, you know, happy. Sure. You know, and, and we could go on and on. Michael Jackson, you know, with his um, bad, you know, in the old days, bad meant bad. But now with his song, bad means good. And it's in the dictionary now that bad can mean good, you know, and progressivism. I, I mean, you know, so, uh, democratic socialist, not progressive. It's regressive. It's been tried. It's a failure. And it's going back to what's been tried. It, socialism did not make this country gay, great. The founding fathers did not give it to us. So anyway, this word thing. But let me just touch on one thing. It's been bothering me for a long time, and I finally figured it out. On another show, Yay K-Talk Radio, I came to finally realize that for the last 30, 40 years, the, I don't know, psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors, and confused parents have been given the children of America puberty blockers and have been messing with hormone therapy. And, and you know, the old um, uh, uh, gender exhilaration, you know, um, kids growing up discovering themselves. Well, this, this, is, this is such a crime against our American children, what they've been doing to our American children. And the schools that have to deal with it. I mean, there's, there's books like When Johnny Wants to Wear His Dress to School. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, they've had to deal with it, and we haven't dealt with it. So, I mean, with these puberty blockers, when they've given them to, to um, adolescents, you know, or preteens, when they, in their 20s, their sexual organs are still the same size as an 8-year-old. Wow. Ray, I hate to end on that note, but uh, i got to take a break here, and I've got a guest joining me in the next segment. Thank you for calling in. we got to pick this conversation up here another time. This is the Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe. We'll be back after these messages.
once again, welcome back to the Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Joe. Very happy to have Kerry McDonald joining me now. Uh, Kerry is a senior education fellow for the Foundation for Economic Education. And Kerry, that's only one of many hats that you wear. But thank you so much for coming on the Joe Carey Show today. It's great to be with you, Brian. Well, good to catch up with you. I, I was telling Carrie off the air, I actually I got, a, uh, got contacted by a listener earlier this week who had heard me sharing an excerpt from an article that you had written about uh, skills that you need to de-school yourself. And he didn't quite catch your name, and he wanted to know more information, but I, I was very happy to be able to steer him towards a treasure trove of your writings at the Foundation for Economic Education's website. So before we begin our conversation, for people who really want to, to check out your writings, what's the best way to find you on the FEE website? Right. The best thing is to go to fee.org slash Kerry, K-E-R-R-Y. And you'll find all of my archived articles there and a link to my new book, Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom. Nice. Now, anytime we talk about education, there's there's always some thin ice, or maybe that's just in my household. My wife is a public school teacher, and so um, there, there are some topics that will kind of make her bristle. And, and questioning education, um, depending on how it's approached, can sometimes do that. But you have a recent article out here about how whatever controversies or whatever debates may crop up, you know, whether it's school choice or just, you know, curriculum decisions or whatnot. One of the most subtle things that that is kind of suggested is the idea that, you know, parents really can't be trusted when it comes to educating their kids. Right. I mean, I really think that at the heart of the debates around education freedom and school choice is this sort of subtle but, you know, sinister idea that parents can't be trusted. Um, and, you know, I talk about in the fee.org article today um, that this is not anything new, that if we look at sort of the architects of our compulsory mass schooling system, um, namely Horace Mann back in the mid-19th century, uh, there was this deep distrust of parents, uh, particularly immigrant parents that were flooding the into um, particularly Boston, where Horace Mann was, uh, and challenging the kind of Protestant Anglo-Saxon uh, status quo. And that's what really led to kind of this institutionalization of education and shifting control of education from the family to the state through compulsory mass schooling statutes. And I think we're still in the kind of residual impact of that, um, even now 165 years later. And in the article, I talk about, you know, where we're seeing um, more efforts to tread on parental authority. So, you know, if you think about summertime has historically been a time when parents have been responsible for their children's care and well-being uh, outside of schooling. And we see a lot of uh, emphasis now on summer learning loss or what is sometimes called summer slide and policy efforts to say, hey, you know, particularly for low income or disadvantaged kids, we have to make sure that they're getting these academic academic rigor, rigorous academic training through the summer. We can't just rely on them staying with their parents in the summer. And so I cite, you know, these researchers basically saying, you know, parents can't be trusted. They don't have any of these skills in academic which leads to the question, well, you know, didn't they go through public schooling? What does that say about the education these parents received if they're so incapable of seeing to their child's care and well-being? 
Very true. Now, you there was a phrase that you used in, in your article that sent a little chill up my spine, and that was that there are people, there are reports arguing for cradle-to-kindergarten government interventions. I mean, look, I know yeah. about Head Start, and I know about preschool and so forth, but cradle-to-kindergarten, what exactly would that mean? Yes, this is a, a new academic paper out um, it's called Cradle to Kindergarten, A New Plan to Combat Inequality, and I link to it in the C.org article today. Um, but it's, you know, all of these things that we see, we keep hearing about, particularly uh, with the Democratic presidential candidates as well, that this idea that we need, you know, government-subsidized child care right from birth and universal preschool, and that really, you know, again, this sort of underlying um, sentiment that parents cannot be trusted with and they cannot successfully care for and educate their children without the government's help. And I think this is a really um, dangerous path to go down. I think that, you know, we should be empowering parents and trusting parents. And if they are uh, having difficulty, you know, raising and educating their children, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they've been disempowered um, and that, you know, they've sort of abdicated their power to the government. Interesting. Now, is this the kind of thing that would start primarily with um, at risk or uh, lower I'm trying to think of the way low income or disadvantaged children and then spread generally to to all children. Right. I mean, I think that this is specifically looking at at risk or low income families and um, providing more government subsidies and support, uh, you know, taxpayer funded supports to those families. Um, again, under this belief that we're kind of helping them, but yet are we stripping those families of their own power? Um, I think that's the real question, and then and then leads to kind of the government really taking over care and nurturing of children from, in this case, the cradle to kindergarten, and then obviously from there going through, um, you know, the next uh, 12 years of, of schooling. So, uh, you know, this is really problematic. And I think a lot of what, uh, you know, what we see is some of these programs start with focusing or targeting um, at-risk families and then get broadened to include everyone. We see this certainly with, um, with universal preschool and how originally it was targeting uh, disadvantaged children who it was thought, you know, could use a leg up in the early years through preschool. And now, of course, um, many families are demanding, you know, universal preschool, um, which, you know, then we were even st- starting to see compulsory schooling laws um, extend to kind of earlier in childhood as a result of that, uh, you know, four and five year olds being, you know, having kind of compulsory schooling expectations. So, you know, I feel like it is a slippery slope. You mentioned in your article, too, that, uh, um, you know, it, there, there's also kind of a feigned empathy for parents, maybe to help persuade them, hey, look, this is really in your interest. What are some of the, the things that a parent might hear that would tell them this is a really good idea, not just for your kid, but for you, too? Right. I mean, there's always these ideas, oh, you know, parents are too busy or they, you know, look, summertime in particular, you know, it's not like your work obligations stop. Um, so why should schooling stop for your children, which then, of course, makes you wonder, well, is it just babysitting? You know, are we, are we 
just looking at kind of sub government subsidized babysitting, if that's the case. Um, yeah, but just this overall view that, you know, parents, look, we know you're too busy, you're too tired, you're too this, you're too that. Um, let us take over this responsibility from you. <laughs> and, you know, again, it really, I think, disempowers families and, you know, has negative consequences for children and our overall society. So you recommend some solutions. What can parents do to, to push back against this, this creeping government control of, of how and what kids are going to learn? Right. So I say, you know, don't be wooed by this siren song of feigned empathy for your burdens of work and family, particularly as the Democratic presidential primaries heat up. Um, you know, this sense that, oh, these presidential candidates, they really do care about your, your work and family burdens. And I think it's really that they're trying to push their own policies um, that really, in the end, are about, you know, stripping parents and families of their power and, and having the government kind of take over these responsibilities for care and nurturing. Um, the other thing is, you know, don't don't be convinced of this false belief that you're incapable of caring for your children or determining how, where, and with whom they should be educated. So part of that is um, making sure that we're supporting efforts around school choice and education freedom that put parents back in charge, that enable them to opt out of an assigned district school, for example, um, that may not be working well for their child. And this is a way of, of putting parents back in charge and, and, uh, and giving them some tools and some um, capacity to kind of fight back against government bureaucracy. Okay, Carrie, we've got about a minute left here. One final question for you. Um, when it comes to the ways that kids learn, you've literally written the book. On, on how it doesn't always have to take place in an institutional setting. Let's talk about your book. Yeah, so the book, Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom, um, looks at homeschooling, unschooling, and self-directed education, um, but really is fundamentally about disentangling education from schooling. Again, since sort of compulsory math schooling began in the mid-19th century, these two ideas, education and schooling, have become fused, and I'm hoping to really begin to separate those. Okay, and they can find your book, I'm sure, on Amazon. I would encourage folks, read your articles on fee.org. Carrie McDonald, thank you so much for joining me here on The Joe Carey Show. Thanks, Brian. All right, I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe. Stick around. We have Ralph DeLugas and Truth is Stranger Than Fiction coming up next. Thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.